0: Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, again for your love and your grace, and we thank you that as we look at this morning that you truly are a risen and living Savior. And I pray, Lord, that your resurrection would not just be an historical event in the minds of men, but Father God, it would be something that transforms our lives. Transforms us into people who serve you and love you and honor you and know you in an intimate and a personal way. We thank you that you are a risen and living Savior. Father, may it be evident in every life here this morning. So, Father, we pray you be our teacher. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Catch you up real quick. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection as we're going verse by verse through the Bible. And we get to chapter 21 this morning. But I want to this up just again to understand how much our Lord truly does love us. How do you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. And what was paid for us? Is our Savior was willing to die, that we might have eternal life. In the last two chapters, we've clearly seen the sovereignty of God, that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that He's in control. We saw it beginning with this betrayal. Remember how they were sitting in the upper room, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And we saw that, we saw that uh, at that time, the, the disciples didn't know who it was, Now looked around and said, is it me? But the Lord knew that Judas was going to do it, and He sent him out. We saw his sovereignty in his arrest, because as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not hiding, he was there praying and seeking the Father, and, and preparing his heart for the cross, that the soldiers that, that came with Judas, 600 plus soldiers, came to arrest our Savior. And those of you who go to Israel with us in March, you'll see very clearly that when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, that the Brook Kidron is down and they have to go down and up to come up, and it was nighttime, and it says they were carrying torches and lanterns. And as this crowd was coming to arrest our Savior, he again he did not run, he did not hide, because it was appointed for him to go to the cross. Then when they came to arrest him, they asked. He said, "Who are you seeking?" And they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." And he said, "What did he say?" He said, "I am." And what happened to the soldiers? They all fell over backward because Jesus Christ is sovereign; he's in control. And he said, "I am." It's the same name for God that we saw in the burning bush. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me to deliver the people out of Egypt? It was the power of his name that brought deliverance in Egypt. It was the power of his name that drove these guys who came to arrest our Savior straight back on their backs. But that yet they still proceeded to arrest him anyway. We know that, they, that Peter came and cut off Malchus's ear and he put his ear back on. And then they took our Savior away and they, they tried him unjustly. And we know that the people chose Barabbas over Jesus, and and Pilate tried to wash his hands of our Savior. He tried not to make a decision about Him. But let me encourage you with something. If you're here this morning, you must make a decision about Jesus Christ. No decision is a decision. You're either for Him or you're against Him. He's either your Lord, your Savior, and your King, or you will be judged based upon the fact that you've denied Him. And so we see that Pilate tried to wash his hands of the Lord and even sent Him off to be crucified. Now before he was crucified, we know that they scourged our Savior. And again, we've talked about this, get the tapes, but, and they're free by the way in the back, but we know that scourging was one of the most brutal things that could be done to a human being. It left our Savior with his flesh torn open, his organs exposed, most people would die from it. And as he lay there in that bloody mess, they picked him up and they took a crown of thorns, and thorns came into existence in Genesis with the sin of mankind, a picture of sin, and they pressed it upon our Savior's head. And then as he stood there, they took a robe, because he had said he was the king of the Jews, and they mockingly put a robe on him, and put a reed in his hand, and they mocked him and said, behold, the king of the Jews, and they laughed at our Savior. They then covered his head, and they hit him and said, prophesy who's hitting you. They spit in his face. Then when it was all done, they took a cross and put it upon his shoulder, and as he was headed on that mile-long walk, having been up all night, having been scourged, his body torn open, that he fell under the weight of the cross. Then Simon of Cyrene was called up by the soldiers. He picked up the cross and carried it the rest of the way. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the cross is a representation of guilt, and Jesus Christ was not guilty. And Simon was a picture of us, and that he picked up the cross, because you and I are the guilty ones, not Jesus. We're the sinners in need of a Savior. He's the perfect and holy Savior. We then saw Him being crucified and they, they nailed His hands and they nailed His feet to the cross and He hung there and as He was hanging upon that cross, He had to literally hold up His weight and every time He did, that raw flesh of His body was rubbing against the cross. But then we saw that at the noon hour that the entire world went dark for three hours. It's interesting, those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we're going through Leviticus and, and we looked at Exodus at the Passover and during Passover, there was, right before Passover, there was three days of darkness. And right as our Savior's hanging on the cross, that perfect Passover lamb, there was three hours of darkness from noon till three o'clock, as the sins of all mankind were placed upon our Savior. At the end of his time on the cross, and again, if you want a more detailed look at the cross, again, please grab John 19 tape in the back. But our Savior said something. He said, Tatalestai. What does that mean? It is finished. And praise God that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid it all. He paid the price, it's done, it's finished. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, amen? It's not Jesus plus 12 steps, it's not Jesus plus 10 organizations, it's not Jesus plus 5 doctrines, it's Jesus Christ alone, and Him crucified, and risen from the dead, and through Him we're saved. To talesti the word also means paid in full. That's what they would mark something with when someone had paid a debt, and praise God He paid our debt. Then last week, we we moved from there to the tomb. And as Jesus was in the tomb, it's interesting, we've talked about this, that he was clothed in what? What was he wrapped in? Linen. And remember that when he was born, he was wrapped in linen. And remember that those of you coming on Wednesday nights, that when the, the priest went on the Day of Atonement, he would take off his priestly robes and he would put what on himself? Linen. A picture of what Jesus would do several thousand years later. So we see Jesus was wrapped in linen, and what I love is that that Nicodemus and Joseph were the ones that put him in the tomb. And remember, these guys were undercover Christians until they saw the cross. When they saw our Savior hanging on the cross, they stopped being concerned about what men thought. They stopped caring about what the world had to say. They weren't worried about being defiled from the world's perspective or cast out of, of the synagogue. All they cared about when they saw the cross was Jesus. May that be the same for each one of us. That as we see the reality of the cross, that we too would come out of the closet for Jesus Christ. Amen? That we would not be ashamed of Him. Then as He was in the tomb, that we saw that Mary showed up. We saw this last week, early in the morning. Mary, the last one at the cross and the first one at the tomb, the woman who'd been forgiven much, had had seven demons cast out of her body, came and Jesus wasn't there. Now sadly, she showed up with spices to anoint a dead man. She too, just like all the disciples who were up hiding, did not understand the words that Jesus said that he would truly rise again. Then he appeared to the disciples. Remember that Mary was told, go tell the disciples and especially Peter that I've risen. Remember that Peter had denied our Savior. We're going to look at that this morning. And Peter had gone away weeping bitterly and the Lord in his grace said, go tell my disciples and especially Peter that I've risen. And when Mary got there and told them, they didn't believe. But Peter and Andrew ran and they saw into the tomb, and we know that Jesus was not there. Those, again, of you who go to Israel with us, you'll see as we step into that same tomb that Jesus Christ is not there, that He's a risen and living Savior. That's the God that we serve. And so after that, He showed up to the, 12, to the apostles, and He appeared to them, and they finally believed that He had risen. We know that Thomas was not there, and then finally Thomas came and said, you know what, they said, we've seen him, he's risen! And I, oh man, unless I see it myself, that's where you get the term doubting Thomas. Thomas said, unless I see it myself, unless I put my finger in, his, in, his, in the prints of his hands, I won't believe. And then the following week, what happened, the next Sunday, we mentioned that Thomas missed out on seeing Jesus because he wasn't there that first Sunday morning. It's amazing how we miss God when we don't go to church, right? And so what happened was, on Sunday, the following Sunday, Thomas was with the guys again, and the Lord showed up, and when the Lord was there, Thomas was able to see that he truly had risen. And so we pick up this week, and the resurrection is now behind us. Jesus Christ has been crucified. He's risen from the dead, just as he said that he would. And again, all other biographies of men stop at their death but not with our Savior. Every other biography, the death is the end, but not with our Savior because He rose from the dead. But now we have this epilogue, this last chapter in John. And as we look at this final chapter in John, it's interesting because we will see that the Lord is not done with the apostles. He's risen from the dead... But you know what? He still has more work that He wants to do within their hearts. So I titled today's message, Transform to Serve. If you take notes, I titled the message, Transform to Serve. Because the cross must be more to us than some historical event. It must be more to us than just the fact that, well yeah, that's Easter Sunday and it's something we celebrate. We must realize that Him rising from the dead should impact us in every single way. And so we're going to see that as these guys are are touched by the Lord, that they're transformed to serve our Savior. While through His death and burial and resurrection, He triumphed over sin and death, when He had the promise of heaven to come, there was still more work He wanted to do in preparing their hearts for ministry. And no doubt there's still, still more work He wants to do in our hearts to prepare us for ministry. So we're going to see Peter's example this morning. We'll look at all the apostles, but specifically Peter. We're going to see the fruitlessness of serving in the flesh, the fruitfulness of responding in obedience to the Word of God. We'll find out what the only true motive is for ministry, and the true cost of effectively serving the Lord. So let's begin in verse 1 and look at the faithlessness, or the fruitlessness, excuse me, of serving in the flesh. Look at verse 1. It says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's also the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is the capital of Galilee. And so this is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the way he showed himself. Now, during the 40 days after his resurrection and before he ascended back to the Father, Jesus would appear out of nowhere. And he would appear And and, uh, many, many times He appeared to crowds, and He appeared to the disciples. This is the third time He's going to appear to them. The first time was in the upper room. The second time was a week later with Thomas. And in the meantime, they had been told, and you see it in Matthew, to go to Galilee, and the Lord would meet them there. So they've gone home to Galilee, and we'll look at verse 2 there, and it says, And those who were there were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So, they were told to go to Galilee, and they went there, and they're there waiting for the Savior. Now, it's interesting that this is their home turf. This is the same place where these guys were called into ministry. These fishermen are now back in their old stomping grounds, and as they're there, they're waiting for the Lord. But we're going to see that as they're waiting for the Lord, they're going to grow impatient, And as they grow impatient, they're going to fall back into their old way of life. I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you? you gave your life to the Lord, you started walking with the Lord. you were waiting for God to do something incredible in your life, and in the meantime, you grew impatient and you went back into your old lifestyle. You went back into that old way. You went back to doing the old things. Well guess what? You're not alone. Because take a look at what Peter does here. Look what it says in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. Now what did the Lord call them out of? What did He call them out of? Fishing. He said, drop your nets because you are no longer fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You will no longer fish for fish. You're going to fish for men. And Peter's been called out of that. And, and so have all the other disciples, and now they're called to, to go out and minister to people, and to be used by God to touch and transform lives. But you see here that they go back to their old lifestyle. Now, fishermen are known for several things. They're known to be courageous, willing to weather storms. They're known to be dedicated, that they're not easily distracted. They knew how to work together. But you'll also notice that while they have these great characteristics, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, I don't care how talented you are, Without Him you can do what, the Bible says? And nothing means nothing. Look it up in the Greek, nothing means nothing. That means without Him you can do absolutely nothing. And so we see here, that while you can have great characteristics and you can be you know, a really polished speaker or a great musician or, or you know, whatever your giftings may be, they're all fruitless for the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit is the one that is enabling you and going before you to use them for His glory. And so we see here that these guys are gifted and they're talented, but they don't have the Lord with them because they're going outside of His will. And notice who the leader is here. And by the way, interesting note, every time you see the disciples listed in the Bible, guess who's always listed first? Peter. Peter was Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, right? Peter was Mr. Jump in first, ask questions later, got him in trouble prior to Pentecost. After Pentecost, those same attributes are going to use mightily for the kingdom of God. It encourages me, because sometimes I look at my boys, those of you who know my boys, they're, they're pretty outgoing, and they're pretty aggressive, and, and I think, boy, you know, sometimes dad's got to get the board of education out and discipline them, but at the same time, those same attributes of, of not bending to what other people say and being stubborn about what they believe can be used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God if it's led by the Spirit. Those same people, when the kids come later and are tempting them to do things, well, Peter was just that kind of guy. He was Mr. Go-for-it, and usually he would jump in where he shouldn't, or he was chopping off ears, or he was rebuking our Savior, but that same, those same characteristics, empowered by the Spirit, are going to be used mightily by God. But notice who the leader is. They're all sitting around. They're waiting for the Savior. Peter could have said, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's seek the face of God. Let's get on our knees and let's just pray that God would prepare our hearts as the Savior's coming to minister to us. They could have been running up and down to all their old neighbors and family and friends and telling them that Jesus had risen from the dead. But instead he says, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go fishing. What do you guys think? And all the well, I think, okay, let's go fishing, right? And Pete's Mr. Leader, so he says, let's go fishing and all the guys, okay, let's go fishing. And so they go out and get in their boats and go back to their old way of life. And we're going to find out just how fruitful that is because we don't see them seeking godly direction. We don't see them praying and asking God what he thinks they ought to do. Pete just steps up and I'm going fishing. Okay. They all get in the boat and out they go, possibly again growing impatient. It says, and they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught what? Nothing. Do you know that there's no record of a disciple ever catching a fish? You know that? I mean, the only time any disciples ever catch a fish is when Jesus told Peter to go down and he would pull a fish out of the water and there would be a coin in its mouth. And that's the only time. The rest of the times, it's when the Lord would tell them what to do and they would obey Him. Then they would catch fish. These guys are a disaster. These are fishermen. And they don't catch nothing. But they go out there in their flesh and they go out there in their own abilities and it's fruitless. And I want to encourage you, if you go out and try to do things in your own ability, and you try to do things according to your your own strengths, guess what? It's going to be fruitless in the kingdom of God if you've not been on your knees first, if you've not been seeking the Lord first, if you've not sought His direction, and you're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see here that, that they go out and they catch absolutely nothing. They're looking back. I don't know what's in their mind, but they may have even thought, maybe, you know, the Lord's not coming, it's been several days, who knows how long it's been, maybe we just need to go back fishing. You know, it says in Luke, and Jesus said unto them, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. They were pursuing what they had once forsaken, and Peter again could have led them in prayer, but instead he led them to go out into the ocean, and they caught nothing because without him we can do nothing. They toiled all night in physical pursuits, and they, it came to nothing. Look at verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now it's interesting to me that when we go back to our old way of life, and we start pursuing things in our flesh, and we start doing things according to our will, and we start striving in our flesh, that the Lord can be standing right there, and we will miss Him every single time. You're not going to see Jesus when you're not looking for Him. Amen? Here's the reality. You're going to go through trials and difficulties and struggles in your life and when you do, you can not be looking for the Lord and you can be looking at your circumstances and you can be overwhelmed and you can try to overcome them in the flesh or you can sit back and say, okay, Lord, what do you want to teach me? Lord, I know you're here because you never leave me nor forsake me. What do you want to teach me in the midst of this trial? How do you want me to grow in the time of, this time of difficulty? These guys are out there all night and they're pulling their nets in and out. They've been up all night long, these fishermen. And as they're doing it they're catching nothing. And then morning comes and I think it's interesting that they're fishing and it's dark outside. They're out doing out in their old way of life and it's dark. Right? And then the Lord shows up and it's morning because he's the light of the world. Amen. And so they're toiling all night trying to catch something. The Lord shows up and they don't even see him. May we not miss God. Because we're toiling and striving after pursuits of the world. May we not be so caught up in our career, and so caught up in in our hobbies, and so caught up in everything else that we miss out on what God wants to do with us. God has a plan for our life. He wants to use us mightily. He didn't save you so you could be a pew potato. Amen? Or a big fat sheep. Just getting fed every week. Why is the dead sea dead? All inlet, no outlet, right? We don't need any more fat pew potato fat sheep, right, just big fat sheep, getting fed, getting fed, getting fed, and not growing, and not ministering, and not reaching others, and not flowing out on the world, and so what happens is, the Lord desires that we would take in, but we would minister out, don't be so caught up in the world that you're no good for the kingdom of God, amen, and so we see here that the Lord shows up, and they don't even see Him, He's standing at the shore, didn't He already tell him He was coming? If if the Lord tells you He's coming, you think, well, I'd probably be looking for Him, it's kind of dark out here. and we're not catching nothing. I'm, the Lord said he'd be here any time. I'm thinking, where's Jesus right about now? And instead, these guys are again, twirling away. Physical pursuits and missing the Savior. How often does the Lord draw near to us? How often does he speak to us with that still small voice? And we're so busy, we don't hear him. Dave, go tell that person about me. Yeah, I'm busy right now. I got stuff to do. Go, go talk to that person about me. Go share with them the love of God. Ever heard that voice before? Holy Spirit? And then we're, not right now. Too busy. And that's what's happening here. So we're going to move from fruitlessness to fruitfulness of responding in obedience to the Word of God. Look at verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And the word here for children could also be interpreted boys. And the word would be for immature ones. Hey boys, I told you I was going to be here and you're out there in that boat. How's it working out? Caught any food? Now this is amazing that a fisherman says no. Look at their response. No. You ever met a fisherman that didn't catch anything? They always caught. Oh, well, man, you should have seen the 18-foot. Uh, we had this, and we were pulling the okay, the one that got away. These guys, they've been out there all night. Did you catch anything? No. We didn't, we didn't catch nothing. Well, okay. Why does the Lord ask? This? Does he know they didn't catch anything? Of course he does. He's God. When you ask, does Jesus know, the answer is always yes. Amen. So he knows everything, he knows they didn't catch anything, and he asked the question, why does he ask the question? He wants them to admit, admit their failure. Before we can be filled with him, we must be emptied of self. Before we can have forgiveness, we must, there must be conviction before there can be conversion. Amen? We must see that we are sinners before we will see a need for a savior. And so the first thing he does is he wants them to admit, we caught nothing. We're doing it in our flesh. It's going nowhere, okay? But look what happens. I love our Savior. He doesn't say, he says, children, do you have any food? He doesn't say, you a rebellious bunch of backsliders. What are you doing out there? Aren't you glad that our God's a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness? Amen? Amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he didn't just smoke? you? Well, if he smoked us when we sinned, we'd all be piles of ashes in here this morning. Right? I'm just so glad that He's a gracious God, and He loves us so much. But He says, children, or boys, have you caught anything? He wanted them to confess their failure, and they answered and said to Him, no, I haven't caught anything. Verse 6, And He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Where have we seen a story like this before? In Luke chapter 6, when, they first, when He first called the disciples, they were out fishing, and they'd been fishing all night, and He told them to take the net and put it on the other side of the boat, and what happened? Who remembers? More fish than they could carry. Why? Because they responded in obedience to the Word of God. This should be a reminder to them. They're back out in the boat. They've gone back to their old way of life. The Lord wants to remind them. Remember that last time you did this, how I brought the fish and I called you away from this? I'm reminding you of that. And I want you to take the net and put it out on the right side. Now, it's interesting, again, that they didn't just say... And I've been at this very spot. And you'll be there again if you go to Israel. And I've been at this very spot. And moving the net from one side to the other is moving it about four or five feet. So they've been toiling all night. And the Lord tells them to move the the net four or five feet. And from the world's perspective, it makes no sense. What, the fish... It's four or five feet away. We've been doing this all night long. But they don't argue... Praise God that these guys respond in obedience to the Word of God. You know what? Sometimes we're not going to understand what God is telling us, but we need to respond in obedience anyway. Amen? Does God know more than us? A little bit? Duh. He knows way more than you, right? Okay? He's God. You're not. Okay? He created the universe. You have created nothing. All right? He's God. Okay? Now, He's God. He says, move. And they said, oh, and they don't know it's the Lord. It's just some guy on the the shore. But praise God that they respond and they heed the voice of the Lord. So they cast it and now they were were not able to draw it because of the multitude of the fish. The success in ministry was not because these guys were eloquent and great fishermen with really good equipment. Right? Right? The success did not come because these guys had studied their, their fishing charts, and it, it wasn't because of their great teamwork. What, what brought success to this fishing expedition? What was it? It was the Word of God. It was obedience to the Word of God. It was God speaking to them and saying, yes, Lord, and doing it. So often we think we've got to. I got to get to seventy-two different degrees, and then I'll be prepared to go. And you know, once I get to this point, then I can share my faith. And so often we think we have to have the whole Bible memorized, you know, because I can't really share my faith because I've only been a Christian about a year. And you know, they might ask me where Cain got his wife, and I won't know the. I can't say anything, right? Look, you've got a testimony. God's done a work in your life. You just need to respond in obedience to the Spirit. And we see here that they respond in obedience, and what happens? Tons of fish. These guys were the fishermen. But we know who it was that put the fish in the net. It was the Lord. The same is true of us as fishers of men. It's the Lord that draws people into a place of salvation. Look at verse 7. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved... Who's that? John, the one who wrote this book. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. He saw a miraculous work that could be attributed to nobody but God. He saw what happened and and no doubt flashed back to the occurrence that was recorded in Luke chapter 6. And he sees toiling all night and nothing happening, responding in obedience to the word from a man on shore. And all of a sudden they got more fish than they can carry into the boat. And John, the thinker, the contemplator, the one who sits back and pays attention says, Oh, it's the Lord. You know what? We should be walking around all day saying, it's the Lord. Amen? Amen? Driving in your car and you see a rainbow. Oh, it's the Lord. Driving around, you know, seeing nature, oh man, it's the Lord. Sitting next to somebody like I did yesterday at a little league game and being able to talk to her about the Lord, it's all a divine appointment, it's the Lord. You know, going, driving in your car, being in line at the, and you just see God's hand all over every aspect of your life, man, it's the Lord. When I'm sitting there studying last night and just God ministering to me, thank you, Lord, it's the Lord. We need to be looking for Him in every aspect of our lives, Amen. He's with us all day long. He loves us so very much. Don't get so caught up in the things of the world that you miss out on seeing Jesus. It's the Lord. He's the one moving. He's the one that's right there next to us. Now Peter, Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, how does he respond? Now when Peter heard it, was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. you got to like Pete. I mean, here he is, right? They're all in the boat, And all the fish are there. And remember, why did he go out? He he went out for one reason, to catch fish. Now they got more fish than they could ever possibly want. And all of a sudden, he knows that it's the Savior and the fish aren't important anymore. Isn't that great? The things that you're striving after and you think are so important right now, when you look and you see Jesus Christ, that stuff is not going to be important anymore. It's going to fade. It won't matter. And Peter is out there toiling all night. Now they got all this fish. And he's like, it's the Lord? He throws on his outer garment, I believe, in respect for the Savior. Because he was clothed pretty scantily, right? That's what they do as fishermen. They would cut down to their skivvies right out there fishing. And he threw his coat back on and jumped in the water and swam to the Savior. Jesus is there. That's where I want to be. I don't care how many fish are in the boat. I want to be with Jesus. I don't care how much the new job pays. If it's going to keep me from fellowship, I want to be with Jesus. I don't care you know, what the, moving here or what other temptations the world will bring to get our eyes off of the Lord. We've got to say, no, no, the Lord's more important. I've got to keep my eyes on Him. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to the Savior. Again, no doubt reminded Peter of an earlier experience that, again, is recorded in Luke chapter 5. Let me just read to you real quickly. It just says in verse 4-11, and when he had stopped speaking, he said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. But Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at, the wor- at your word, I will, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and the net was breaking. Peter had seen God do it before. And, and at the end of that, he says in verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch fit. you will catch men. You're not going to catch fish anymore, Peter. You're going to be catching men from now on. And at that point, he forsook all and followed the Lord. And now he's fallen back into his old way of life. But I'm so glad that the Savior was right there to say, Peter, let me remind you, I've called you to a greater calling than being a fisherman. I want you to be a fisher of men. And he showed up at the shore, and he called him back. Pete, come on back. Got to love it. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. 200 cubits is about 100 yards, so they were just off of shore, and they brought, they were bringing it in, and the net was so full, they were dragging it, and all six of these guys, literally, if you look in the the way it's worded in the original language, they could not drag the net out of the water, because it was so full of fish, They, they, they took six guys and they were pulling on it, and they couldn't get it out of the water. But they get to shore, and they come to the Savior. Then as soon as they came to land, verse 9, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Here's the the bonus question. What is the word there for fire of coals? Does anybody know? Two weeks ago. Get the tape. All right. Fire of coals. This word is only one other place in the Bible, and the word is anthracia in Greek. And the reason it's important is it's a hot coal fire. The only other time you see this anywhere in the Bible is when Peter was about to deny the Lord and he was standing over the hot coal fire and he was warming himself with the enemy. And remember the little girl asked him, you're one of them. And he cursed God and said, I don't blanket, No, blah, blah, blah. I don't like Right, that's what Peter did. And then he looked across and whose eyes did he meet? Jesus' eyes. Can you imagine cursing our Savior, and then he looks across the courtyard, and he sees the eyes of Jesus, and he, oh, and he went away, and he wept bitterly for three days. Now, how many of you, when you smell something, especially something really strong, reminds you of something else? I can't smell freshly mown grass without thinking of football. I played football when I was seven, until I was 21 years old. And when I smell freshly mown grass, I'm back playing football again. And when I smelled some flowers the other day by the church office, I asked my mom, and there they they were flowers that they had at the house I lived in when I was nine years old. It's amazing how you remember. This has only been a, a short amount of time, a few weeks, since Peter was standing over that pungent smell of that hot coal fire. And now he comes to shore, and what is he smelling again? That same smell, that hot coal fire. What do you think Peter's been reminded of? He's back standing around that hot coal fire denying his Savior. And I'm going to point out why that's significant in just a minute. So Peter had denied the Lord. He had cursed cursed the Lord and denied Him three different times. And we see here again that God brings back that memory to him. The Lord does. And Jesus said to them, "...bring some of the fish which you have just caught." And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And all there was, although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now this is interesting, you guys, because the six guys tried to pull it in and what happened? They couldn't do it. Peter goes, what's the difference? Who told him to bring it? Jesus did. Peter, go get it. Okay. Pulls it in. Why? Because if God calls us, He will enable us. Amen? Whatever God has called you to do, He will equip you to do. Right? He doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. And if God calls you, just be available and God will use you in a mighty and a powerful way. And He brings the fish in. Now what's interesting to me is He brings them up and there's 153 uh, uh, fish. Why do they put that number in the Bible? It's interesting when we were in Israel that our tour guide, who at this point was not even a Christian, said that during the time of Jesus, that the fossil record showed that there was 153 different species of fish in the lake of, in the Sea of Galilee. How many fish did they pull out? 153. At the time of Jesus, believed that there were 150 nations and tribes that existed on the planet. How many fish did they pull out? 153. It was also the number of languages on the earth at the time. In any case, what's this a picture of? The fact that the Lord, His atoning work, is available to all of mankind. That He's going to reach out and allow all who will come, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, has an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of His disciples dared ask Him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? It's interesting that they caught the fish, but you notice back in verse 9 when they showed up, there was already fish being cooked. And there was already bread there. Why? Because the Lord had provided it. They're out striving in their flesh to catch more fish, and when they get up to shore, the Lord had already provided it. The Lord will provide for you without you striving in your flesh, amen? He wants you to be faithful, He wants you to work, He wants you to put your hand to the plow, but you don't need to go outside of His will to provide. God will provide for you, verse 13. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed Himself to the disciples after He had raised from the dead. So He appears to them again, He provides for their physical needs. Now let's move to the only true motive for ministry, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And He said, yes Lord, you know that I love you. And He said to them, said to him, feed my lambs. Now, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? And he's going to have a chance right here to three times tell the Lord that he loves him. He's sitting over the hot coal fire. It's bringing him back to the time he had denied the Savior that third time and cursed him and looked across and his eyes had met. And now he's sitting with that same smell coming into his nostrils. And he's sitting there and our gracious Savior is going to give him three opportunities to affirm his love for the Savior. What an awesome God we serve. But look what he says. Do you love me more than these? Now, the these, we don't know for sure what it is. He could have said, do you love me more than these? And pointed to the other six disciples. Do you love me more than these guys love me, Pete? You know, earlier you said you'd die for me. Do you really love me more than these? He might have been pointing to the fish, the the big catch of fish, and saying, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than the physical pursuits of life? Do you love me more than these? And, And then look what he says. If you do feed my lambs. Now the word there for love is agape. The Lord says, do you agape me? Agape is a selfless love that loves something outside of itself more than itself. It's a sacrificial love. It's a supreme love. Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. I'm fond of you. Do you love me supremely? Am I the most important thing in the world to you, Peter? Do you love me in a self-sacrificing way? Am I the most important thing in the world to you? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I'm fond of you. Is that the same thing? No. But the Lord takes even that and He says, feed my lambs. Notice He doesn't say, Pete, do you love lambs? Then feed them. He says, do you love me? What is the ultimate motive for ministry? It's loving Jesus amen the key to to being effective in ministry is loving people is is important and I love every one of you guys I pray for you guys every week I'm so blessed that you're here you don't know what a privilege it is for me to be able to to love you and to serve you I I think it's the highest calling in the world I would rather be here doing this than anywhere on the planet doing anything else I'm the richest man in the world And I love you guys. But you know what? Me loving you is not why God called me to be the pastor here. He called me because I love Him. And He calls you into ministry because you love Him. As you love Him, you will love people. Amen? As you love Him, you'll have a burden for your neighbors. You'll have a desire to to lead worship. Or whatever it is that God's calling you to do, you love Him first. Do you love me, Pete? Feed my lambs. The word there for lambs is like children. The immature ones. You feed the immature ones. I think that's a great place to start a ministry, by the way. You feel called by God. You feel like God wants to use you in some way. You know what? Minister to our kids. My wife and I, when I was a youth pastor in Southern California, for six years, we were in the two and three-year-old class every Sunday. We had two services. And second service, we were in the two and three-year-old class. And man, I loved ministering to those little kids. What a blessing. Let the little children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He said to him again, verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Agape me. And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said, tend my sheep. Now this is the calling of a pastor, to do more than to love them, but to care for them, and and to, to care for their daily needs, to minister to them in an intimate way, to watch over them. Tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you phileo me? The Lord gives up on agape right now. Peter's a little more reserved. He had said, I will never deny you. And now the Lord's saying, do you love me above all else? He's saying, Lord, you know I'm very fond of you, Lord. But he would not use the word agape. Maybe out of fear that he would fall short like he had the last time when he said, Lord, I'll never deny you. But the Lord's going to work that in Peter. And I think here's another key reason. Acts chapter 2, what happens? Holy Spirit comes upon them what is the fruit of the holy spirit love joy peace kindness you know what the word there for love is agape i believe that's when he gets the agape right now all he's got is phileo because he's not walking in the fullness of the spirit of the living god and and he's still you know wanting to draw near to the lord and he says lord you know that i phileo you and he says lord you knew all things you know that i love you and he says feed my sheep Now, real quick, I don't want to take a lot of time with it, but I want to say this. Those of you know that last March, after 18 years of working full-time, God allowed me to be here full-time. I can't tell you what a privilege that is. But do you know the verse God used when I was praying about it? The other pastors came to me and said, you need to quit your job, Pastor Dave. You need to quit your job. You need to quit your job. And I kept being hesitant. And I was in my office studying, and the two verses he gave me was, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But the other one was, he took me to this verse and said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Then do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. And you know what? What God put on my heart was my wife, my kids, and you guys. And you know what a privilege it is to be called by God to love His sheep. Amen? Love Him, and He'll let you minister to His sheep. What an absolute blessing. Now look at the true cost of ministry. Verse 18. We're almost done. Most surely I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but you were old. You will stretch out, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? You're going to be girded, you're going to be taken where you do not wish. Tradition says, it's not in the Bible, but tradition says that Peter was crucified. And the Lord is preparing him, look what it says in the next verse. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Okay, Pete, you love me? You're going to die. There's a time coming very soon when they're going to drag you where you do not want to go and you're going to be put to death. But come and follow me. Man, that's heavy. Hey, Pete, it's going to cost you your life. Come and follow me. Do you know what? It hasn't changed today. If you want to be used mightily by God, we must die to self. Amen? It can't be my will, my plans, my hearts, my passions anymore. Peter, He said, Peter, you're going to die. And it says in Matthew, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The true cost of effective ministry is the willingness to die to your passions, to your wills, to your desire, to esteem others greater than yourself. And in his death, Peter would glorify the Lord because the way he would live the rest of his life. And so too, when we die to our flesh, guess what? God is glorified. The world's not used to people dying to themselves, is it? The world's used to you fighting and battling and saying, that's not fair and that's not right and getting vengeful, right? That's what the world's used to. And when someone responds in the power of the Holy Spirit and says, you know what, it's okay. You can have it. Really, it doesn't matter. It's okay. God bless you. What? It's such a testimony to stand for Him. And He's saying, Peter, you're going to have to die. Follow me. And for us to follow him, we must die to our will and our passions and our heart. Verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Talking about John when he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So Peter's told, Pete, follow me, and you're going to die. And he's like, oh, what about John? I mean, is he on the death program, too, or what's up? Only <laughs> well, I got to die, or I said I was sorry for betraying you and denying you. Only me, or well, what's up? You know, and you can just see Peter. Well, what about John? You ever done that? I'm serving you, Lord, and how come they got the big house up on the hill and I'm living in the trailer park? <laughs> I live in the trailer park, by the way. I'm not bagging on anybody else. That's me, okay? You know, how, how come that guy's got a nice job and a great car? How come they got a great voice and I can't hit a note to save my life? This, I'm serving you, Lord. And we always look at someone else's path, right? I, well, mine's kind of rough. I want that one. Can't I be Billy Graham? Right? Lord, I'll be Kurt Warner. I could be the quarterback for the Rams, win Super Bowls, and I'll say, I love Jesus when they put the camera on me. I'll do it. That's what Kurt Warner does. And so often we look at someone else's path and we want their path and Pete's going, well, what about John? I got to die? What about him? Look what the Lord says. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Hey, Pete, my plan for him has nothing to do with you. If he's going to live until I return, that has nothing to do with the walk I've called you to. The walk that somebody else has is irrelevant in your walk with the Lord. Amen? You be faithful to what God has called you to do and quit looking at everybody else and being envious of their walk. Too many people want there to be two of somebody else and none of them. I wish there was two Billy Grahams. I could be the other one and none of me. God saved you to use you. And He's got a mighty calling on your life and there's people that you can minister to that Billy Graham cannot. That Kurt Warner cannot. God wants to use you. And he saved you for such a reason. And Peter's, well, I don't understand. What about him? This saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say of him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? There was a rumor that went out after Jesus said that, that, that John wouldn't die before the Lord came back. And as John got old, people would be like hanging out looking at John. How are you feeling today, John? Just wondering you got a cough there. What's up with that? John's got a cough. John's got a cough. Right? I mean, everybody's like thinking the Lord's going to come back before John dies, so they're watching John. That's a mistake. Don't be looking at it, man. Don't, you need to be looking for the return of our Savior. Amen? You need to be seeking after him, saying, Lord, I'm going to serve you till you come back. And Lord, I'm only looking for you, and I'm only after you, and my passions are only for you. last two verses. This is the dis- disciple who testifies of these things, who wrote of these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. You know what? Jesus did so many awesome things that not all the, bo- all the books in the world could not possibly contain them. So as we prepare to take communion in review, transformed to serve, responding in obedience to the Word of God motivated out of love for the Lord, a willingness to die to yourself and eyes set on things above, not on what's going on around you. You want God to use you in a mighty way? He's not looking for ability, but availability. Amen? You say, Lord, use me. Eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole or seeking one He can show Himself strong on account of. If you just say, Lord, use me, that is a prayer He will answer every single time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord, for Your love and Your grace, and we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You've called every single one of us. The Lord, at salvation, there was a calling that came with it, and You desired to use us in a mighty and a powerful way for Your kingdom. And Father, may we be obedient to Your Word. May we be motivated out of our love for You. May we be willing to die to our will and to our passions and to our flesh. And Father, I just pray now as we go to this time of communion, that Lord, the table would not grow common, but Father God, that it truly would be a reflection of what you did for us on the cross, that you would rather die than live without us. You're willing to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Real quick, here's how we do communion here at Calvary Chapel. The bread is a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the juice is a representation of His blood that was shed for us. And what we do here is, you don't have to, we don't have membership at Calvary Chapel. You show up, you're a member. That's how it works, okay? You're here. We're all part of the church. Amen? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then this is for you. And you do it in remembrance of Him. And the Bible says not to take it lightly. So what we're going to do is we're going to play some worship. Just come on up and grab the elements. Go back to your seat. You can take it with your spouse or with a friend if you want to. But just examine your heart first. And then take communion in remembrance of what he's done for us and know this, that we will take it with him again when we get to heaven. Amen? Let's pray quickly. Lord, I pray for the communion. Lord, may you be glorified. Examine our hearts, Father God. Conform us to your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.